and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks. We are going to be talking with Samuel A. Simon, who is known as Dementia Man. Uh, it is also a play that he has written, and I can't wait to learn more about that. But before I get started, I want to welcome any new listeners. Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We, we really want to talk with people who are in the trenches and have, have some real-life stories to share so that's people diagnosed, that's family and friends and professionals, variety of businesses, researchers, uh, clinical trials. We've had musicians and movie directors and authors. So everyone is welcome here. We don't think we can make sustainable change without having the voice of everyone lifted and coming together. And hopefully you'll get connected to some new resources here too. Speaking of resources, please go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Check out our free resources and also our new book, Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. And then another resource um, that we've created with uh, Dave Wiedrich, who has the Memory Cafe directory, is called Dementia Map. And there you'll find not only just a resource directory, but you'll find articles, you'll find events and glossary of terms. So there's no cost. There's no tracking. We ask you for no information. We just want to connect you to services, products, and tools that you deserve. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. Let me pull them in. So Sam, I am so excited to have you with us today. I love your logo right by you, Dementia Man. I think that is just a, a wonderful, wonderful title. And I can't wait to have you share your story with our audience. So let's start out by having you introduce yourself to our audience. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself before you were diagnosed and then how that happened. Okay, well, my name is Sam Simon. I live in McLean, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. I grew up, though, in El Paso, Texas, by the way, and uh, came up to Washington in 1970. I went to law school, and I my first job was to work for a guy by the name of Ralph Nader. Uh, some people don't know that name, but most do. I worked for him when when he was a, the good guy. I still think he is. He's a friend still. Uh, he wrote the book Unsafe at Any Speed. And because of our work with him, his work, of course, uh, automobiles are safe or made safely. You have seatbelts and airbags, really because of the work he did. And um, that was the beginning of my sort of adventure. Though I'll talk a little bit in a while about El Paso uh, because it on my mind when we talk about or when I think about why do I have uh, early stage Alzheimer's and where did it come from um, but um, I came up here in 1970 and had the privilege of working in that area and uh, did that for uh, many years I had a stint you know in a Washington lawyer's career I worked on the hill for a senator I Worked at the Federal Trade Commission under when President Carter was you know, was there, and a lot of us sort of Nader people had you know, worked in the government. And then uh, I went back and worked for Ralph for about eight more years. Some people think I'm the guy who broke up AT and T. By the way, we, some young people don't know we only had one phone company once, and it was called AT and T, and I was very involved in that and. My son called me a minor public or minor uh, uh, notable official. Anyway, I was on the Oprah Winfrey show. I was on Face the Nation talking about how to save money on your phone bill. What a boring topic today. Uh, but I did all that. And you know, we have two children and grown children. And uh, they both sort of live near us. We have four grandchildren. 
And in many ways, everything seems like and has been in many ways ideal. Um, things change for us in two different ways. I think it's important for me to mention that the first big change in our life was when my wife, Susan, got very sick in 2000. And she was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer. People should know that her mother died at very early age in her 50s from breast cancer. Susan was diagnosed with breast cancer in, her, in 2000 and went through a time where the doctors didn't think she was going to survive. And I had to be her care partner. I call it love partner. And, you know, this was at a point where I was beginning to transition myself from the work I'd taken over. I'd become a public affairs and built a public affairs practice in Washington. And I started um, doing some improv work and theater work. And I wrote a play called The Actual Dance. And it, I like to say that it found me because it was about that experience. So I got into theater, which is relevant to sort of where I've ended up. But to go back to my own personal story, um, the first indication that I had something going on with me, and it's interesting because it's, it's an interesting question. When, when does it start? And I was told, and I believe that once you're diagnosed with a memory disorder, you'll look back and see that's been around for a while. You just thought it was part of getting older. And um, my, I was always bad at directions. I thought it was just, I was bad at directions. And I started getting lost, uh, not remembering the routes to places. And then I had a couple of incidents, more serious. And, you know, I would be, I'd drive down the wrong side of the road until I saw cars coming at me and I had to turn around. Um, and I, things were happening. So I, I was complaining to my doctor. I wonder how many people in your audience, us gentlemen, well, I've had... The, this experience. Oh, you highly educated men always overreact to normal aging. And they would dismiss the complaint. They said, you're just getting older. And um, what sort of changed things is I, I had an experience that sounds a little bit odd, because it is odd. <laughs> I experienced... Um, what I call a black wall or a black infinite nothingness place in my head. It was like a black wall. I couldn't, it, it would block the answers to things. I, I would sort of, in my mind, turn right to find, oh, what's that person's name? Or have I seen them before? Have we been here before? Which way should I turn? And there would just be this black infinite nothingness. And finally, when I complained to my doctor about that, I went to a um, neurologist and <laughs> when I told him about the nothingness place, he immediately, like I said, say, scheduled me for every study, electronic study of the brain known to doctors. And then I was diagnosed because in 2018, I went through a neuropsychological test, a neuropsychologist, that five hour long test and I was determined to be mildly cognitively impaired. But I didn't understand then either, though, was, okay, that, first of all, it was like good news to me, because people were telling me this was normal aging, and I knew it was different. Inside, I knew there was something wrong, but we don't have the experience to understand it. And so I was sort of like, all right, good, there is something wrong with me. Um. But the first doctor, the first neurologist, you can interrupt me anytime, was just like, well, you know, too bad. You've got MCI and nothing we can do about it. Uh, and started to leave. He finally gave me some Aricept, a prescription. I, I never took it because he, he didn't even schedule a, a follow-up appointment. 
Wow. So we, went, we saw another doctor, another neurologist, had me go to uh, Georgetown Medical Center here and get screened there as well and try to qualify for some drug trials so I could get that PET scan with contrast. <laughs> you know, um, your listeners probably know. The only way to definitively to know if you have Alzheimer's or what's causing your decline in cognition is if you can get this PET scan with contrast, which is today, I think, a seven to $8,000 and not yet covered by insurance. But if you can qualify for or try to qualify for a drug trial, sponsor of the trial pays for the pays for the PET scan. I had it done. They, I'm amyloid positive, which means I have uh, uh, early stage Alzheimer's. So that's how I was diagnosed. And, um, you know, we live a very good life here. And in Northern Virginia, we have four grandkids and everybody, you know, but it's become a big part of my life. I... I'm lucky that it's, you know, you hear me now, maybe if people will even see me, you don't have dementia, you don't have any. But what I've learned is you don't see what else happens in life. This is what happened. You don't see me get lost. You don't see me go around the neighborhood and all of a sudden not know where I'm at. And it can happen in an instant. Now I can stop. I can pull over. Hopefully it comes back. And it has so far. You don't. See the fact that you know, I talked earlier about things. You know, when I look back, what, I used to do my personal finance every every week. Quicken. I hope people know what Quicken is. It was my little thing, and I did, and I I could do it. It was easy. I you know I ran a company for a while. I used to be really good at that stuff. I hadn't done it for a year, a full year. Why? It was well. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. It became too hard for me to do, but I didn't understand that. I was just putting it off. You know, a distinct change in behavior and style. And now we actually have, we've contracted out our personal finances because Susan, my wife, is not that good at it. And and we've been advised and we've done it that nothing can happen without two signatures. Uh, because people like me are known to go and do really bizarre things. <laughs> uh, and I was that way anyway. No, I'm just easy. So, so that's, that's been the journey. Um, it's a struggle in that, you know, I know that something's wrong. And it's so hard to even get the medical world to sometimes see it, acknowledge it, and then do the the proper testing, uh, and it also takes an emotional toll because Alzheimer's is not curable; it is a terminal disease, and you have to. I have to come to terms with that. You know, my goal is, and I say then that you know, well, what I've done, and maybe you're holding this back. But I wrote a play about this. <laughs> uh, which is good, writing about it, whether a play or just keeping a um, diary might be good for a lot of people. I learn, I learn from what I write more about my own experience. And when I get to repeat, repeat the play and do it, this was true with my other story about being with Susan. You know, she was sick. I get deeper insights to my own journey and um, you know, there there's a pretty negative narrative out there about this disease. There really is. There really is. And that's one of the things I, I love about talking with people who are living with it, because, boy, you guys are making such a difference out there. Um, I want to make a couple of comments on, on what you said. One, I had to laugh when you said you were working with um, Ralph Nader to get those phone prices down, because I remember when I was in real estate, I'll never forget this. I had a 
a reporter. I had a big conversion fan and he was up in my windshield trying to get me a picture of me uh, driving my van with (laughs) phone in hand. And at that time, my bill was like $900 a month. So I appreciate how much you have the phones. You're talking about after you had a phone in your car. Yeah. Oh, then we had the battery pack in the back end. (laughs) Well, you have Uh to... Yeah, I come from a generation when I grew up, mm-hmm. we had five digit phone numbers. Mm-hmm. We had a party line. That meant we were not the, the three different households shared the same phone number, but it rang differently in each house. And I forget how many, what our distinctive ring was. And so phones have, in my lifetime have come an amazing way. And when I bought, and you talked about how much they cost, I remember my first cell phone, um, let's see how I did exactly. They offered two for one. They were, they were called car phones. They weren't mobiles. There was eventually a pack that you could carry around. They were called car phones. And you were right. They were just terribly expensive. But, you know, I was, you know, I, I became... My second round with Ralph Nader, where we worked on telephone, like I said, telephone and telephone policy for, you know, consumers and advocating on behalf of consumers, uh, keeping not only phone bills down, but making it more available to everybody. Um, yeah, no, it's that. And look, we're in a new, even this AI business. Wow. That is, you know, I, I think though AI might be good for us. Us meaning people with cognitive. By the way, I don't like the word dementia. Mm-hmm. I, if I can cause more trouble, which I like to call myself a troublemaker, um, we can get rid of that word. We're neurocognitively disabled. We have a neurocognitive disease. The medical world has stopped using the word dementia. Uh, the DSM-5, which is the one, the medical manual, refers to it as neurocognitive disorder. Because um, we're not mad, we're not insane. We just are profoundly forgetful. And and I hope the dog, if you hear the dog in the background, I've got a dog barking, sorry about that. Um, but... Um, I would hope we could use different terminology about the disease we ha- we have, and because um, it it's a disrespectful word. We are not insane. We're not crazy. We're not mad. We we're just profoundly forgetful and disoriented. I hope that AI might be able to do some things for us. I dream that maybe eventually there'll be an AI robot of some sort that can have before while I'm still able learn about me enough that communicate and how I would have would have communicated when I lose that ability. I don't know. I just like to imagine something in that way. Well, interesting. Now, I I was glad too that you had um, pointed out that the difficulty in getting diagnosed that is still such a common thread out there. And, you know, we dealt with that with my mom, who's been gone since 2014, who lived with the disease for 30 years, you know, prior. I mean, this, it's improved somewhat, but still not near to to the point it should um, for most families. Most families say it's a two to three year process. And And it's a double, and this is why your work is so important. It's a, it's a two sided or multi sided process it's not just the medical field mm-hmm. the tragedy narrative around it make people embarrassed to embrace it or acknowledge it i see it even now i had a friend somebody who's struggling with his wife called me mm-hmm. said he won't talk about it and can i talk to you a little bit about your experience because he, he wouldn't tell anybody and there's a lot of people there's a there's both shame and fear of retribution if you're still in the workplace or I don't know what. So I may even be obnoxious about it. Uh, 
but it's important. I mean, you know, I would love to get well, but I, I know that that's not an option, but I can be as functional, and we can talk about that too, as long as possible by doing as much as I can. I'm on, I'm in a drug trial. I've chosen to do that. I take some medicine, mine's galantamine, um, which would be a first order drug. The Aricept, which my first neurologist wanted to just hand me, was, as far as I understand, one of the later stage A, is that you don't give it as an initial drug. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a lot to do with the medical world. I don't know how much I can be helpful on that. If I could, I, I would. I hope telling my story of what happened with the first neurologist. I, I don't use his name. Oh, I think I'm going to go to his medical practice and let them know that, you know, that I'm not going to use their name publicly, but that they were the. Thanks for the story. Yeah, yeah there <laughs> you go. Sure. Thanks for Thanks. the story. Thanks for your story. Well, and, and it's just, I mean, I hear that story over and over of people, you know, going to the doctor and then when they finally do get diagnosed, when they finally get taken seriously, it's a prescription, it's another appointment. And as they're walking out, it's get your affairs in order. And if, and if you're lucky, you get a number to the Alzheimer's Association. A lot of times you don't even get that. And I can't tell you how many people have told me, and we just went out to the car and we cried for two hours before we could even drive home. I mean, just devastating. And, you know, that's one of the reasons we created, um, Dave and I created um, Dementia Map was to be able to give people some resources because families want to explore on their own all the multitude of things. And, you know, we've tried to get that into the clinics and we can get the doctors, the nurses, the clinic managers, but then IT says, we're not linking up to anything. You know, we're, they're worried. And I get that. And then the legal beavers say, you know, we can't refer anything out because we could be liable. And so these people are just lost and it's, you know, it's like hand them a flyer, you know, you don't have to pull up anything on the computer, but instead of having this wall of flyers that never gets delivered to anybody, just be honest and say, we can't do that, or I'll start handing them out or come up with some kind of packaging, because I think, I think it would help the doctors not feel so guilty that there's no help, because that's how they feel that there isn't anything they can do. And there's a lot they could do if they just pointed people in, in different directions. A, you're, yes. And I strongly believe that a medical practice or a doctor should not be permitted to practice, to be in a medicine, in a field in which they diagnose dementia or Alzheimer's without an infrastructure of support for the families. Mm -hmm. So when we, so on our first appointment, and to you, you almost told the story. It's interesting, almost our words. Um, but you know, he leaves the room. I gotta go. And he just told us there's only one. Literally, his words were, "There's only because I said, well, what's 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 going to happen? What's next? What's my journey?" He said, "Well, there's only one road for you, Sam. It's down. You're just going to get worse." And, oh, here's Aris and I got to go. And so, you know, we, you sit there and we go to our, the front desk to leave. First of all, we had to find our way there. And, and then the nurse says, well, he didn't, he didn't give us any instructions. We'll be in touch if he wants to see you again. And, you know, you can't do that. No. There needs to be at least a social worker yep. in the office that said, let's sit down and let's talk about this. And, um, but, you know, you, what happened to us, you, you know, you just say, we go, we leave the appointment. Now, they didn't say Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. but we go and we sit in the car. And, you know, there's this moment. And Susan says, we get in, Susan's words were, we need to find another doctor. And we need a second opinion. And we need to understand how you might get better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she called somebody, got a reference. We were lucky. 
we, we like our current neurologist and he was able to connect us with uh, the Georgetown University um, clinic, which has all these major drug trials. And uh, he's still our neurologist, but um, you've gotten to know the head of the Georgetown clinic. Now you it's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio. Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. You, you mentioned something, though, you know, about my own family and my own journey and whether it, I don't, it, it's odd. I don't know, you know, because we grew up, you know, did, was there people, there were a lot of people in my house, in my life. So I'm 77. I will turn 78 on July 18th. Uh, and so in the, 50s and 60s, you know, there were family members who had problems. We had an aunt live with us because she couldn't um, take care of herself on her own. She was, she just couldn't do that. But so it's hard to know, did she have, what kind of cognitive problem did she have? They were, they didn't diagnose it. She just, and we had an aunt who was an extraordinary person, another aunt, my mother's side, an extraordinary, you know, one of the first women lawyers in the country, and uh, spent her last 15, 20 years in a home with a memory disorder. People didn't die, you know, they, it was just, oh, what, not even dementia, what was the word they, there's senile, senility, or Hard, hardening of the arteries. I mean, I remember when my great aunt um, was in a nursing home and I was, I was 13 years old and my mom and my brother and I went to see her and I'll never forget the day she didn't remember my name. And I was really close to her and I was devastated. I bawled for like two weeks going, why doesn't she love me? Why doesn't she know me? Why the heck does she still remember my brother when he doesn't care about her at all? We had to drag him, <laughs> you know, and I was so personally offended. And I remember my mom saying, Lori, this is just what happens when people get old. This and is by the way, I do. I have learned that I have a genetic variant. It's mm-hmm. called the APOE4 Okay. So I have one incident, and it turns out these these ants were from my mother's side, but it's my grandmother on my father's side, mm-hmm. uh, who I've learned and through genetic testing found those relatives, and there's extensive Alzheimer's in that side of the family. But I didn't know that until you know, like recently, after I was diagnosed, and never. But I never heard of these genes. In fact, when I first you know, uh, 23 and Me, and it came back and said, well, you have this gene variant that might make you slightly more likely to have Alzheimer's. I didn't think anything about it. But then it became an important factor in my diagnosis mm-hmm. that once you got a better into the right neurologist and they learn that, then they do want to go deeper and suspect that it might be, it could be Alzheimer's as opposed to some other uh, cause for the uh cognitive decline. So I, I sort of know the side of the family that it's from, mm-hmm. that it is a genetic trait. Um, and then the job is to how, to how to live the best life I can live with the disease. And what we're understanding and what you've, part of those teaching me 
is that there's very little information about early stage mm -hmm. that the public, you say, whether you use the word dementia or you say Alzheimer's, the picture is a person sitting in a room in a nursing home with a blank stare on their face. Yeah. I don't That's know if that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, you know, I, I don't know if that'll be me or not, but that's not, I'm far from that at the moment. Yeah. I hope I am. Well, that's what I love about Dementia Action Alliance and Dementia Minds and dementia-friendly communities and, um, you know, companies like myself, Alzheimer's Speaks and Dementia Map, we're, we're trying to change that, that vision. We're trying to remove that stigma and show people I mean, there's some kids that get dementia and people are like, oh, that's impossible. And it's like, well, they say a lot of stuff's impossible. But what I what I really want to see is and I want to care, don't get me wrong, but I want more money put into education and care for those living with this disease. I mean, I've, I've looked at how the funds are divided up and it's so um, it's so heavily weighted towards pharma. And again, I want a drug, but they've been working on a drug and they've been spending a lot of money for a long, long time. And families need help. They need support. And there are a lot of things that could reduce symptoms. And they're finally starting to study some of those now, um, like engagement, social engagement, music. I mean, that, that can really help reduce stress, which reduces symptoms and make it easier for everyone to have a quality life and, and be able to live fully. And, and that's part of where I get really frustrated with is, um, and, and I get there's the lobbyists and they are doing their job, but it's like, God dang it, there are so many people and they, you know, they look at the numbers and go, oh, there's X million, you know, people living with the disease. Well, you know, not to diminish that, yeah, that's people living with the disease. That's people that have actually gotten diagnosed, but there's a lot of people who haven't gotten diagnosed. And that doesn't take into account their family and friends who are struggling with this disease. It's not the disease of one. You know, yes. it, it's much greater. And we need more support, you know, for families. And I'll, I'll get off my podium on that. Well, you know, <laughs> let me add to your podium. It, and so I've written a play. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. I was quite, even from beginning 2018, when I was diagnosed with MCI, I wasn't sure I could continue what I was doing. And I was performing a different play back then and uh, struggling with my lines and the like. Um, but I, I also have a part of my life, I've been very active in the disability advocacy world. I was on the board of directors of the World Institute on Disability. Uh, that's where, if you've heard the name, the late Judy Human uh, passed away recently. She was a friend, and she they call her the mother of a modern disability movement. And then a, a Professor Frank Bow, who uh, was deaf, was a good friend of mine, and he taught at Hofstra University. They call him the... Uh, father of American disability policy. So I've been in touch with the mother and father of disability. But the disability world doesn't think of what we have as a disability that needs to be accommodated. And they people th think accommodating dementia or uh, is sounds like an oxymoron to them, but it's what you're saying. And the answer is you can. So in my play, I imagine... I, I, I do it this way. What if we had CNs, cognitive navigators, as available as curb cuts? That is easy. That is people who can help us be in museums or go to stores or literally be our companions. Not not a companion in a nursing home, but available to us. You know, they've got vans to pick up people in wheelchairs. And take them to or be part of mass transit. They can have people who can take me someplace and make sure, including a museum or maybe a store, and help me shop. Not shop for me. Help me shop. Help me do things that I 
might need some help on. People need help walking. So they have wheelchairs and they have cuts in every curb in America. Imagine what would be the, and I don't have an answer to what I'm about to say, but I think it's your point. What would be the equivalent of a curb cut? That is access for people with cognitive decline and disabilities. We sometimes call it dementia. Uh, might be technology, this AI stuff might work. It might literally be other people. We don't know yet, but we're not even looking at it. It's your point. We're not even thinking about it. We're all off into either, you know, miracle cures for everything or building places to put us. Yep. Oh, so I don't want, you know, in the place, my life, I don't want to vanish. You know, typically to get a certain point, you put us in a room, you lock the door and you throw the key and the line in the play, you throw the key and us away. They don't want to have to look at us. And that, that you know, it's a, it is a national uh, shame that we don't treat this in a different way. The, the, with the dignity, you know, again, the lines in my play, but I think it's the conversation. We are human. Well, you know, when I got into this, one of the things that, that pushed me into this was... Um, I was selling real estate at the time. Prior to that, I was actually in the developmental disabled world for nine, 10 years. So I get exactly what you're talking about in terms of the support and the special Olympics. And I mean, there's so many different, different variables. I love the curb cut analogy. Um, but when I was in real estate, it was actually senior housing that, that said, you need to step into this space because I wasn't doom and gloom and take your money. I was about trying to encourage people to, reframe what dementia is and what the symptoms were and how we can still all live fully together with that and still have joyful moments, still be engaged, you know, cause I saw friends and family just drop like flies, you know, <laughs> they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. They were scared they were going to get it. I mean, there's so many misconceptions out there. So when it comes to that curb cut, you know, I really think it's about social, it's about education and social engagement and really allowing people to still, like you said, participate. I can go shopping. I just need some assistance shopping. Right. I, I can go to the museum. I just need some assistance getting there. And what it, what really kind of ticks me off in these equations. And again, is I, I think a lot has to do with, with our lobbyists for pharma, for housing, all of those things, is they're protecting their, their money pass, the, you know, the trail of the funds, and they want that to continue. But you could spend a lot of those dollars and, do, and, and use a lot less dollars and have a much broader, bigger impact on society as a whole, in terms of what this is, what it means, how you can help, and we would all live better lives. We've gotten into this world of, you know, it's all about me and what I do doesn't matter to anybody. And, you know, I don't need to help them because that's not my thing. That's their thing. And I mean, we've, we've distanced ourselves and we don't have those human connections and it is showing up fast and furious in the outcomes in our world with the disconnect with our with our children with the mental health issues i mean there's so many levels and yet there has been study after study after study that has shown the positive outcomes when you volunteer not everything has to be paid for there are people that are willing to step up and step in especially our younger kids that say hey i'm not living the life my mom and dad did i want to feel purposeful and we are not opening the gates to let them in we can be their purpose but it's shameful that those connections aren't being made and like with my mom the voice of a person with dementia wasn't even part of the conversation back then Right. And, and as a care partner, we were heard, but we weren't listened to. It was like, choo, choo, you know, and that was it. And they, could, they couldn't wait to get us out the door. It's it a tragedy narrative. And, and that's what I hear. I want to mention, though, that there are those who believe that 
life with this disease is not worth living. And they call for immediate ends. Um, you know, there is the assisted or accompanied suicide. And there's a, there are people who advocate for that. And people I've talked to said, well, I would do it. And I, I, I believe that life with this disease is worth living. And that there are, as you pointed out, and I, and I want to re, just validate from my experience, it's, you know, I'm sure that this has been in me four or five years already. And the more we understand it and the more we can make plans, the more we can do the, whether nutrition or exercise or engagement. And if we can just, you know, it doesn't have to be radical change, although I do think AI kind of facilities are going to make it easier and better to do things that people didn't imagine before. You know, just two quick examples. Deaf and blind people were never in movie houses or theaters. Mm -hmm. And then you had captioning and audio description. And those are simple things compared to what we're talking about. But still, all of a sudden, people who were never included are fully included. There are things that will be discovered that can enable us, whether they're cognitive navigators, whether those are real people, or whether those are fancy things on our ears, or I, are things we can't dream of at the moment. Mm -hmm. What we can't be doing is what we're doing now. And that is taking them out of our, I'm putting my hand up and like against my eyes, hiding us and putting us away because we make people uncomfortable um, because they aren't quite sure. I, and by the way, this it is important to note that this mind stuff is different than wheelchairs. You know, we're not idiots. We know that. It just means the barrier is higher. The work, but they're learning so much more. And I, don't know her name. There's a woman in Israel, somebody's pointed me to, who is, you know, the captioning we talk about, who is actually designing captioning in words and ways that are designed for people with cognitive decline. And that there may be ways to actually project words or captioning that people who, who have various forms of cognitive disability understand better. And mm -hmm. why wouldn't that be true? So this is a big, first of all, thank you, Lori, for, for these programs that let us try to spread the word and talk about it. It's so important. It, to, it really is. You know, one of the things that when you were using the, the word um, or the phrase cognitive navigators, um, I, I see the navigators in the healthcare system and all of that. Um, I would almost recommend using cognitive partners, you know, or cognitive mm -hmm. companions, because I think what I am seeing and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is people want somebody, they don't want to be a medical model. They want to be a human being first, and they want to be in a relationship with other humans. And the, the navigator, I think, is something that is um, kind of that medical model academic phrase that's used and I and I get where it is but a navigator can also in my mind point you in a direction that maybe you don't want to go oh no well yeah now so so look at this we're gonna we should put this on I'm gonna have to change a line in my play because of you <laughs> two days before my premiere I've got to come up, maybe CC, Cognitive Companion, not instead of it. What if we had CCs as, as available as curb cuts? Mm -hmm. yep. CCs or curb cuts. Because it is true, because again, and obviously to some degree, my experience, my wife, Susan, had breast cancer. And every medical facility that treats breast cancer has what? A navigator. Breast, nav breast navigators. Yep. Well, now they do, in some ways, they help them navigate the medical. This is a little bit different. It's For us, it's navigating everyday life, mm -hmm. but, uh, and the disease. It's not, you know, the disease in our lives become one. They're, they're not, they're, they're not, 
uniquely separated. And I think that's true with people with any kind of cancer, by the way. Uh, but fair enough that, fair enough. I'll have to think about that, but that is a good point. That yeah. is a, a good way uh, because they, it is not just the medical, it is the everyday world. I do also want to say that, we, you know, because I had an experience the other day when I was talking to some folks about it. We don't know what goes on behind. I don't have a blank face right now. You don't see me staring into space and non-responsive most of the time. I had a friend, we were talking about these things. He said, you know, I see my aunt once a month. I go visit her at a memory unit. And I just usually sit there and I talk and she stares and I leave. And he said, he said, last, like last week I was there and I got up to leave. And she turned and said, John, thanks for coming. I enjoyed our visit. And he was it because she hadn't done that before. So we don't know what goes on behind that. We don't know. And there are various levels. There are people who think they're different people. You hear the stories of um, men and women who've gone into memory units and then they become companions with other people and the like. So we, we don't know. It's a it's a scary future. It's an unknown future. But it needs to have dignity and the people involved, the patients, if you want to call them that, are human beings. And, um, you know, again, the line in my play, play is, you know, I'm some at some point, you know, I'm some point somebody else may embody my this may come into this body. I may become someone else, not something else, mm-hmm. someone else. We will continue to be human beings. Yeah. And science is just a little bit behind us and they'll catch up and hopefully they'll continue to be significant um, advancements. But do you know something? If people go, as soon as they're diagnosed, run off and commit suicide, we'll never figure things out. Yeah. We have to have them, us, available. And hopefully we can have meaningful lives. And I don't say, and we should contribute to uh, the best we can to science and finding as much of a cure uh, or stretch out a cure or extend our lives as long as possible. Yeah, I'd say a cure or a curb cut, you know. Right. Donate to both, you know, because, uh, you know, any drug that comes through, I mean, they just, they disapprove the one that, you know, we haven't seen one in 20 years. It's not going to come quickly, you know, when when they're starting on a new process. And, you, you know, I, I laugh about it because it defines a bit the nature of the challenge. They're mm-hmm. all excited. They say it could be like a 27 percent reduction in the speed of decline. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop the decline, which is fine. But it, be that excited about, well, it's going to take. What's 20, 20, you know, maybe another month more in a year would be 12. I don't know. My math is bad. But um, so we can celebrate that and realize that that's not nearly enough. Exactly. Um, Well, I want to just take a little break here for a second and just say, if you're just tuning in, you are going to want to rewind and listen to the conversation that I'm having with Sam Simon. He is living with dementia. He's known as the dementia man. He has written a play, which we're going to get to next. Um, And you can go to his website, DementiaMan.com, or you can email him at Sam at DementiaMan.com. Dot com as well. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio. Sam, I really, I can't believe we've been talking almost an hour already, um, but I want to make sure that we get to the play. And, um, you know, so tell us at, 
you know, what made you decide to to um, write the play? So there are, I'm very fortunate in that. So I've been in the theater world and I've written another play and I would, I have associates, actors and producers that I interact with. And I've been part of a group that whose work is about various forms of healthcare who who write in this the genre of about journeys with disease and the like. And a woman by the name of Gail Shickley, who's in California, uh, who's been very active in this area, kept pushing me to write about this journey. Because it was easy to, and is easy to get down and depressed and and you know, I didn't think I could, but she kept encouraging me to. And so it's through her and others' encouragement that I said, all right, I'm gonna give it a shot. And um I love what I'm doing. I have to be accommodated. <laughs> I will have my script in my hand. Now I don't hope I hope not to read it, like just send out and read something. I I'm practicing it enough to hopefully have it down as good as I can. But I can't do it without my script. And, you know, maybe one day I'll have a, um AI thing in my ear that'll give me my lines as I go. I don't know. But I'm glad they did because it, among other things, adds meaning to my life. You know, I, I'm not from Mars. I'm like everybody else who goes through this diagnosis. And yes, there is you know, is life with this disease worth living? You you have to struggle with that question. Um, as you see people saying it's not, and as you wonder yourself, but, uh, you know, so I'm really blessed with having those people in my life and that I've been lucky enough to have been able to have written another play and learned. And, you know, by the way, there's something that's very good for people with cognitive decline, and it's called improv. And I did improv, theatrical improv, been trained in it. I was trained earlier than the, the appearance of the disease symptoms. So it's been helpful for me, but it's also helpful for the family and the partner. Oh, absolutely. And by, it's funny, I can almost, I don't want to say, uh, I've had experiences even recently as this, last few days, Sunday. How's that for me? This is a Tuesday <laughs> we're recording. Um, where somebody got really agitated with me because I didn't remember something that they were sure they told me. They probably did. But I'm sure I didn't hear it or know it. The way you deal with that is you don't have a fight. Somebody has to say yes. And if that's the way it was, then we need to go this way. Yes, ending. Yes, particularly for the care partner or the companion, the other person. If, if the one person dealing with sees the world in a particular way, you're not going to argue with them out of that. Because that is, you know, and so it is the truth. I see the event that this person said he may have, it may have been the way he remembered it, but it wasn't for me. And it doesn't matter who was right or wrong, I can't function because I have no recognition of that moment or cognition of that moment. So learning how, so families and caregivers and people particularly with early stage, they can have a lot of fun with it, but learning how to do the yes anding, mm -hmm. accept all information. Now, what do I do with it? If you try to say, no, it didn't happen that way, you have to believe me, it's not going to go anywhere. See, well, it, yeah, it just accelerates everybody's frustration in the moment. Yes. And we feed off those negative energies instead of, like you said, having fun with it and doing a yes, yes, but or yes, and. Um, and no buts. You can't say but. Can't say but. Okay. No, you can't say but. But, but is thrown in the. So in the play, I say, I want to throw the word dimension, the trash heap. Of mm -hmm. history, along with uh, retarded and the N word, but has to go in the same place. Okay. Okay. It's always an and. Okay. And, and is an alternative. Okay. So my favorite, let me do this. Mm -hmm. So, Laura, you want to go to a movie? Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
Let's go to the movie and on the way, let's stop at the pizza shop. I don't want to go to the pizza shop. Oh, yes, you do. We'll get to the movie. Let's just stop. Now, will we ever get to the movie? No. <laughs> See, you said you said no, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. You, the answer is yeah, we'll stop. So, or yeah, it should have been you should ask me, Sam, do you want to go to the movie? I would say yes. Another way, let's stop at the pizza shop. So that's an and. So um, I forget the name. There's a very well-known person uh, who's a nurse, and she's got some films. She showed a, a video of a yes, Andy moment. A woman who was in the uh, uh, memory center and would go around and had a ball that she thought she was cleaning. She had been a cleaning lady, and. You don't say stop cleaning. That's not a cleaning thing. Don't do that. Say, oh, let's finish with this chair. Mm -hmm. And then let's go have lunch. Yep. Rather than stop that, this is not, you're not cleaning and that's not your job. The person believes they're cleaning. Yep. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you say to them. They will believe. And she might, it works and it can work. Nothing works. You know, but even in the other medical environments, People need to be met where they are and listened to, even when what you hear to you mm-hmm. doesn't register with the real world. Oh, I agree. You know, I was looking on your website and I saw a quote there that I just want to read about your play. And it says, I love the complete unpredictability of the show. Um, as you already know, it's such an unprecedented theatrical experience to hear Sam's story, but it was more than just a novel experience. It was head spinning, even shocking in a captivating way to see him trying to decipher himself and try to get his arms around his life as impacted by the disease process. It felt like a true um, breakthrough from a hidden dimension of human experience. At dinner, we talked about it nearly the entire time. All of us felt immediately invested in the direction of the show and all the possibilities for its development and audiences. And, you know, I, I have not seen your show, but I, I have seen other shows about this and it is. It, they are riveting because they expose this kind of taboo topic in a new light. And yet everybody you talk to pretty much knows somebody who's dealing with this. So that at least has changed. So what I wanted to ask was, um, and again, we have to wrap up here pretty quick. Um, what can people expect out of the play? A vision of the world that includes those of us with the disease, a new way to think about um, life. A couple of things, actually. And thank you for the question. First and foremost, that people with the disease are human beings, Mm -hmm. entitled to the respect. And that my hope is that it will help in an emerging movement. And you're part of it. And thank you. For the recognition, the need to be inclusive, to make, to, to acknowledge the large population, and in, in include us, put it, make us part of your community, mm-hmm. and then people. Um, there's a book out there, the one I do want to mention that you may have read it. It's called On Vanishing, by the Reverend. Um, oh, her name's on. Uh, Castile Harper, Lynn Castile Harper. And she made the point, and the point of her book is that people like me, those with cognitive decline, add positive presence in their in the community. That it's not only that we're the poor people, but we are people that can be a positive attribute. And make their make the life. She talks about a spiritual circle they had, and somebody who had had been had a cognitive disorder no longer could make it. And she said, "We were the worse off of it for it. We are worse off for not." And I think that is, if we can all part of our work is that we add a positive element to society and community, and the communities 
you know, my call in the show is see us, hear us, and include us. Um, and I think that that is a huge uh, campaign that needs to to be seen and heard. And I hope that that can become apparent by what I do. I can just be a small part of that. Well, I I love that. Um, and I, I totally agree with that um, statement, you know, that that you give us something too. I mean, we're all intertwined and, you know, none of us can run the ship alone <laughs> and, and make sure it goes in the right direction because if we're not talking with everyone, we don't know what the needs are and where the stops need to be made. You know, it's just a real basic thing to me. And I've never understood why, why that isn't embraced because to me, that's common sense. And in, instead of somebody thinking they know all the answers, I always used to say, instead of peeking in the, in the door, trying to figure out what's going in the house, just knock on the door and ask them how they're doing. But you just triggered another thought or way to present it. You know how, how radical new discoveries are made? is people who think it's not impossible. Our minds are limited by what we presume can't be done. And some of those barriers come down from people like me and some call it crazy and some that say, well, why not? And find maybe it is crazy, but maybe it is an insight into a different way to do amazing things and can be the next radical advancement in science or human relations. I mean, so I, yeah. Yeah, creativity is really important. And I think it's one of those things that has kind of been cut out and pushed out of the equation, unless it's, unless it's pharma, you know, unless it's some kind of big movement, if it's housing, whatever, but little simple things that don't cost a lot of money are making huge, huge impact on people. And they're not getting, they're not getting um, what they deserve in terms of attention that can help people because some of these things don't even cost any money. They are given away free and yet we're not connecting people to them or there are minimal costs. Um, Your play is, is one of those things where I think, I think with plays and movies and and music, they take people, you know, they kind of get them off center and they didn't know they were going to be so highly impacted by the performance because they were just going in, to watch a movie or watch a play and yet it hits them. It shifts them from a mindset to a heart set and really makes them realize the impact on people's lives and, and also what they can do to make a difference there. So I, I appreciate uh, that so much. Sam, what's next for you? Well, my goal is to set up a, well, two things. First, I would like to tour 2024. If there are any, organizations or groups who'd like to bring us to them. It, it's very simple. I mean, it's a one-man show and one, maybe two of us. Susan, my wife, always comes with me. Uh, but it's easy to put up. It's not too expensive. I yeah, try to cover my costs. So I'd love to tour, whether it's a medical conference or just a local theater. And then we have talkbacks and um, community groups. So that's one. I will also, so in the actual dance, I performed it for like nine years before I decided to write the book version. I'm odd. Some people write a book and then do a play off it. I write a play and then write a book. I will try to begin in this fall to write the book version of this so that it can be also available in a different format. So that's what I'm trying to do, but I would love to be able to, um, I, we could do it by Zoom, but these are so intimate that I don't like doing this by Zoom. I want to be in the room with people and have these conversations, because I know that they can be very emotional for some people. Well, and I like that you're doing the talk back too, because so often um, people do a talk at, and they get yeah. professionals lined up and go, okay, well, we're, we're going to have hospice and home care. And, you know, and it's like, no, they need to talk about their emotions. They need to be able to ask questions, um, share their experiences and, and, you know, that's the power. I mean, that's, can, that's the hook. 
you know, and, and giving them a safe place to be able to talk about things is, is really powerful. I, I uh, show a film called uh, Timeless Love, and I remember going, and we were in a church, we had about 200 people or something, and we, we previewed this film. And then we do a talk back afterwards. And there was an executive director of a large organization, I won't say which one, and she spoke up on how the film affected her. And she immediately came up to me afterwards and said, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have spoke. It's not my place. And I just gave her a big hug. And I said, you're one of us. You've experienced this. And she said, again, big organization in 21 years, I've never told anyone my story. That felt so good. And it's just like, there shouldn't be shame. This shouldn't be hidden you know, sharing our stories helps people live better. It gives them more choices. It explains um, different things. And it takes away that, that feeling that I think we all have is, oh, I don't know anything about this disease. And what it makes people realize is, you know what? I'm 10 steps behind Sam, but I'm 10 steps ahead of Betty. And, yeah. I, and I can still help somebody. You know, and it builds that that team and that sense of community. Well, I I am just um, so honored to have this talk talk with you today. Um, We've covered a lot of ground. I could talk with you all day long. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, it's mutual. Thank you so so much, and thank you for your work. Now, this, and I hope to continue to be helpful and involved in this world with you. It's a new it's a new place. I'm entering it. I've been entering it, and I want to. You know, my style, my life has been to try to be a positive contribution wherever I'm at, whatever I do. Wonderful. Well, thank you. To our listeners, I I really want to ask you to like, click, and share this show. Be a giver of hope. Spread the word. People need to hear Sam and, and what he's doing and the insights that he has. They're powerful. They're helpful. And, and it's all done in a comfortable conversation. So, you know, it just takes a few seconds. We're not asking for any money. We're asking for a few clicks um, to just help spread the word. And I would imagine people can find out about the play if they go to your website, DementiaMan.com. Is that correct? Correct. So wonderful. And again, if you're interested in having Sam come out and, and do the play, you can contact him through his website, or you can email him at sam at dementiamap.com. We now have Dementia Man on the Facebook as well. And you also have a YouTube channel. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for your time today. And for our audience, you know, again, please go to alzheimerspeaks.com, check out our website, tons of free resources there. And also check out Dementia Map, which is our uh, global resource directory. Uh, where we've got 150 different categories you can search. And if you know of someone who should be on there, please pass it along. It's very easy to sign up. Till next time. Bye now. Bye and thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond, I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.